Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. All right, what's going on, everybody? Is war the health of the state, or is the state the health of war? Today, we're going to dive into the topic a little bit. I'm really, really grateful for the guest today because he was able to uh, free up a little bit of time to drop by the show because I had a cancellation, so I'm very, very grateful for his time. Um, As always, hit all the links below where you can find my guest, myself, what I got going on, all the cool stuff. You can see the element boxes right there in the mts nutrition stuff all that good stuff is down in the links below so um, without further ado let's rock and roll guys what is up everybody my name is kyle matovic i am the host of the in liberty and health podcast where we talk all things liberty health and wellness and beyond my hope is to encourage and spread the message of liberty and physical and mental well-being I hope you enjoy all the topics we talk about with our guests. We're on all major streaming platforms, so please sit back, relax, and enjoy. Man, I'm doing as good as anyone can do getting buried by his 13-year-old son on leg day. <laughs> I'm not going to apologize for not being on this podcast because I got to go see Metallica. So if that's a problem, kiss my ass. Okay? I am. <laughs> all right. All right, everybody. Welcoming back, Keith Knight. How you doing, man? I'm doing very well, Kyle. Thank you for uh, the uh, kind introduction. Oh, as always, as always. Um, we were shooting the shit before we uh, hopped on here. And uh, yeah, you look absolutely fantastic. You look healthy. You look happy. And that's uh, awesome. I know you just did a couple rounds with uh, Dave Smith. So um, yeah, I mean, it seems like you've been um, you know, doing well. So you know, other than that, how are you doing? <laughs> I, I'm doing fine. Uh, basically, the diet that I am on is just tons of meats, tons of eggs, and some cheese whenever I need to, uh, to switch things up. The whole thing is I just had no idea. I was always trying to avoid fat foods. Turns out that is just another scam. As I have a show dedicated to exposing scams, I was in the midst of falling one uh, for myself. So, Oh, right when I cut out the carbs, I even cut way back on exercising and was still able to uh, to, to lose the weight. Fortunately, I appreciate you saying something. It's it's always nice uh, what, when the payoff comes. Uh, the, in the interim, it's really difficult. But thank you. Uh, what when the host of Liberty and Health Fitness tells you something, <laughs> that's when you know it, it. It's all been worth it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, you know, I always, always, always try to share and promote the homies. And whenever I see my friends out there doing well, losing weight and getting into uh, you know, better shape, I just I, nothing fills me with joy more because it makes me know that like at least what I'm doing is maybe having some effect. And not only that, I just know that people are like taking care of themselves and that you just that's what you love to see in people themselves, you know, bringing themselves to a better place. Like that's I think that's what we're all here for. And I think if we share that a little bit more, then I think everybody's a little bit better off. Oh, definitely. Yeah. That, seeing Chris Christie up there, I go, oh gosh, I know that that was me just about a year and a half ago. <laughs> I couldn't do it, dude. I, I was at uh, 290 at uh, at wow. one point. I, I had a desk job, didn't know about the carb scam. So that that's where I was. Mm-hmm. Wow. 290. Jeez. How tall are you? 
five eleven. Okay, so yeah, we're the same height. Yeah, geez, I was two fifty at my heaviest, and uh, yeah, I you never realize how much you had going on until you kind of uh, shake all that shit off, and then you're like, wow, like th- th- I, there was a whole other person basically on top, like a whole grown child laying on top of me, and I had to carry that around with me every single day, and like it just. Once you lose all of it, you don't really quite understand. It, it's it's so weird because like you'll see pictures, you're like, wow, that was me. Like, we don't even look like the same person anymore. I know. I'm like looking at my friends. I go, how the fuck did you not say anything at the time? Because because when it's happening to you, yeah. it's like so gradual that you don't really notice. Like I never said, exactly. well, today's the day. I'm I'm officially just fucking crazy overweight. It was so gradual. I'm like, I, I got you know a little exercise to do. Maybe maybe I should walk every now and then completely backwards the uh the, the way that i was looking at it yeah i think a lot of people usually find out too that they have uh, quite a few pounds to lose and that's like that's always the sad part normally people are like oh no i only got like a couple pounds to lose but then like you start losing you're like oh no i actually have a lot more to lose but then when you finally get there it's like oh well this is great like i i want to stay here i'm happy and life is good um so <laughs> kind of moving on to what uh, the podcast today is about. Uh, you sent me over a speech and I think it's really, really interesting. I listened to it a couple times. And um, as I said in the intro, uh, people normally refer to the line, and I think it was by Murray Rothbard that said, um, war is a health estate. Am I right or wrong in that? It is attributed to Randolph Bourne in the First okay. World War. Okay. All right. I got you. And you flip this one on top of its head and the whole uh, podcast that you did, I know you gave a speech on as well, was a very, very thought provoking. And uh, I found myself pondering that a lot throughout the day after um, you sent that over to me and after listening to it a few times. And, um, you know, I, I think the inverse, much like you laid out is true as well, that, uh, you know, the state is the health of war, which I, I've like, I, I've had the keep hesitating or keep saying it to not say like the health is the state of war or something like that. But um, so what kind of got you going down this road and kind of thinking about this? I think it was an observation made by uh, Stefan Molyneux in a book, Practical Anarchy, where he actually comes up with the idea of, uh, of switching those around. So when Randolph Bourne said war is the health of the state, he's generally saying that in a time of war, when there's an external enemy, politicians are able to arouse public opinion and desires in such a way that would get them to justify things that the government would never be able to justify under peacetime. For example... After the attacks of September 11th, George Bush got a 91% approval rating. Now, this is the opposite of what we'd see in the private sector, whereas if you hire someone to keep your property safe and they do a spectacular job failing, you fire them and maybe even sue them and try to get, you know, some sort of restitution for, uh, you know, dereliction of duty. But the opposite happens with the state. You get uh, much more uh, public opinion that is in favor of you because people see it as an attack on the nation. They then associate mentally the state with the nation as a whole because of pledging allegiance to the flag and everything. And they're much more willing to uh, give the uh, the government uh, a little leeway when it comes to expenditures. We also saw this after Pearl Harbor. You had uh, Franklin Roosevelt having much more money uh, to spend than uh, he otherwise would get away with. So uh, that is generally what war is the health of the state means. What I'm referring to when I say the state is the health of war, I mean, there are many examples where we see conflicts occur where governments are the main participants. Now, this seems stupid and obvious. Yeah, governments go to war. 
But notice, it is the complete opposite of what we're always told would happen, where that governments are sort of here to keep the peace, and everyone else is sort of like a savage in a state of anarchy with these dog-eat-dog, greedy mentalities. So actually, in theory, the opposite is what we would expect. We'd expect Walmart goes to war with Amazon, and then they form an alliance with Home Depot, and then Ikea comes in, and Ikea murders a bunch of people because they're just they're private companies. They don't care about anyone else. In fact, we see the opposite because it's not in your direct interest to go around murdering people, giving yourself a terrible reputation, and having to bear the cost of violence and creating enemies. So the five things that I say states have that make them much more likely to go to war than anyone in the private sector is the ability to tax. They can fund their operations coercively. So even if mm -hmm. people um, do not approve of what's being done, they're still forced to fund them. States uniquely have access to a central bank, which allows them to print money. This is uh, almost always a monopoly in these cases. It's not like anyone else uh, has the right to do this. Very frequently, they have military conscription. Both Russia and Ukraine have military conscription at this point. In America, we had it for a very long time. And even today, we have the Selective Service, which requires men ages 18 to 26 to uh, be ready to perform military service whenever the state tells them to. So when people can't opt out of fighting, you're more likely to go to war because you don't care about uh, the, their opinions. Another thing, uh, the fourth thing that I mentioned, is that uh, a concept of compulsory education where the state doesn't just provide an educational facility like Montessori does or like the Libertarian Institute does, what they do is they coerce people into funding it and then mandate child attendance to either that school or another school that gets the state stamp of approval. So when you're constantly being sent to the same place, ages 5 to 18, and they're paid by the state, the state is going to give you a much more favorable idea of what governments do than they otherwise would. Same thing if everyone went to Catholic school. Same thing if everyone had gone to Scientology school. They'd have a very biased opinion. The final thing that makes uh, states more likely to go to war is the legal double standard. So on August 29th of 2021, Joe Biden had an airstrike in Kabul. This murdered seven children and uh, three adult civilians. At no point was there ever a large-scale discussion about, oh, you think Joe Biden's going to go to jail for this? Meanwhile, I get caught drinking and driving, and I do have to go to jail for that. But Joe Biden murders people, actually kills people, and no one's even questioning uh, very few people think that Putin or Zelensky will go to jail for murdering people. So this legal double standard means bad people don't have to bear co uh, the cost for their atrocities. Those are five reasons we should uh, be very skeptical of the state. And this is important because people will say, well, I support government in general, but I'm anti-war. That is so contradictory when you understand that the nature of the state is to constantly be at war with your domestic population and frequently going to uh, foreign uh, conflicts, which involve uh, large-scale violence. It's the equivalent of saying, I support the Ku Klux Klan, but uh, I'm against uh, racism. It, it It is completely contradictory, and I love people like Jimmy Dore. I love uh, so much of what people like Kyle Kalinske have to say, but I wish they would uh, embrace the libertarian worldview and the non-aggression principle instead of any aspect of statism.
Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and you would know because I think on the last time I had you on, we had kind of walked through how you became or how you were originally more progressive leaning and then became, um, you know, a little bit more libertarian. So um, those five things, let's kind of break those down a little bit. So um, the first thing you mentioned was taxation. Um, so what does taxation kind of represent in, in this whole situation? Like what what function do you think it serves in being part of the state being the health of war? It means that the state uniquely uh, is allowed to uh, acquire resources without the absence, uh, in the absence of the consent of people in the other party. So if we take someone like Amazon or any local grocery store or, you know, the Mises Institute, you have this equation, which involves a trade. And on both sides of the equation, you have to have consent. The Mises Institute consensually produces things. People consensually uh, give them money in return, either as donations or in exchange for products and services. So you have this harmonizing of interests. With taxation, you have unilateral obligations onto people. So even if they oppose something or don't find it uh, very useful, they still don't have the recognized right to opt out. So when you're getting funds coercively, you have no incentive to really, you know, nickel and dime and make sure that you're using uh, people's funds efficiently. You have much less of uh, an incentive to do so. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Yeah. And, and that's kind of always been the thing that I think attracted me to libertarianism is uh, the idea of consent. And then also, you know, voluntary exchanges, which I think is, the, you know, kind of like the bedrock of libertarianism as a whole is that this idea that, you know, it is moral to steal from a person, especially, you know, steal from another person, use their, you know, their labor, their time and their effort to enrich somebody else. I mean, that literally is slavery. So, you know, as, as people may think it's like a platitude now, it still is true. We should, we should still kind of address it and look at it that way. So the second thing that you said was uh, the central bank, which I think this was made a popular talking point by Ron Paul, obviously in 2008, 2012. Look at that Meredith dropping by, giving us some love. <laughs> Two of my favorite people. Thank you. Um, the central bank was um, the, you know, the Fed, the talking point around Ron Paul's 2008 and 2012 campaigns where, you know, he explained kind of the Federal Reserve to a large amount of people. Um, why is that so important to, you know, the state having the ability to go to war? Because whenever they fall short of money that they've gotten in taxes, any additional money that they wish to spend can be printed. So when we had the CARES Act, which was probably the biggest piece of legislation in recent memory, at least, they didn't have to go around and wait until the taxes were coercively collected. They actually just increased the number of dollars in circulation through what's referred to as quantitative easing, or it's actually sometimes referred to as money printing, but sometimes very frequently dollars aren't even printed. It's just digits added into uh, the monetary system through the central bank. So what this does is this makes all dollars within circulation worth less than they otherwise would be. And it's power being allocated to where the state wants it to. So it's not just like, oh, we, we would probably easily see this if only the Koch brothers could uh, print money and they had a monopoly on printing money. You'd say, well, that gives them tons of institutional power where they can just have these unilateral decrees and fund things they want and deprive others of money if they don't like what that person's doing or don't like ideas that are being promoted. So the same thing happens with the state. So even if they're not able to collect all the funds through taxation or take those dollars out of uh, circulation, they still have the ability to uh, print. 
commonly referred to as the magic money printing machine, just because we would see it as such a scam if anyone else did it. Right. You All you have to do is take the general theory of monopoly that liberals or progressives have in almost any sector. They say, if we had a monopoly in printers, computers, microphones, food, water, uh, we'd see worse quality and higher prices than we otherwise would under competition, so we need antitrust laws. But then they will advocate that the state monopolize the money supply and monopolize guns and monopolize healthcare and monopolize um, things like military conscription. Imagine if Walmart said, you know what, uh, we're special because we produce food and without food, people will die. So we get to force people to perform labor against their will so long as it's based in agriculture. There is much more of a justification for forcing someone to perform agricultural work against their will, which creates food, than there is for military conscription. So, um, yes, that is how uh, central banking uh, relates to uh, increasing state power and increasing the likelihood that wars will occur because it uh, lowers the demand on the politicians. They have to bear less of a cost than they otherwise would if they were private security agencies. Absolutely. Well, and to that point, to perhaps bring it to something a little bit more current for those listening, um, we're flirting a bill out now of sending $100 billion to the uh, 2020, well, guaranteeing arms the amount of $100 billion for Israel, Taiwan, and Ukraine up to the 2025, you know, whenever the next president's elected. Um, now, I think if you went around door to door and asked, you, me, our neighbors, our you know neighbors a couple blocks away, if they would be okay with sending a hundred billion in tax dollars or you know stolen purchasing powers, it pretty much is now to uh, these three countries. Then I'm pretty sure most people would probably deny it. But um, you know when you put it under the guise of hey, this money we're go- this is promoting democracy. We're going to give this money to these countries because this is in our national interest. Um, then it doesn't you know taxpayers don't always realize like hey that's my purchasing power being you know um you know inflated away exactly and at some point you'd say well look at all this money what the heck am i getting in exchange for this and what you're getting for the ukrainian money is uh vladimir zelensky outlawing uh any competing media organizations monopolizing state media he's banned 11 political parties according to the guardian he bombed poland on november 15th of 2022 came out lied said it was vladimir putin has enslaved all men ages 18 to 65 with uh, his decree from february 24th of 2022 confiscated property from from the Orthodox Church, and recently has enlightened us that according to the Ukrainian constitution, they are still under martial law, which means this year, his election year, they will not necessarily hold elections. That's the democracy we're defending when people are forcibly allocating their hard-earned money to the uh, Banderites and their friends, uh, Zelensky. Mm-hmm. Right. So in if you don't mind for another second, um, for the Israel-Palestine conflict, um, I read that they were flirting with sending a hundred million dollars to humanitarian aid in Gaza. And then obviously we send four, I think it's what $3.8 billion to Israel every year. Um, what is the strategic gain to that? Or what is the strategic gain that, um, you know, our, our leaders would have us believe that we're receiving? 
Well, uh, anytime something is, you know, promoted as a humanitarian effort, we can immediately see that it lacks the very humanity they claim to when people will be put in jail if they don't chip in. So anytime you can sort of arm both sides, whether it's giving them military arms or making them reliant when it comes to food, water, clothing, shelter, the same reason that... um, Otto von Bismarck implemented a welfare state in uh, in Germany. It was explicitly done to make the population more reliant on the state. So if they didn't like what the state was doing, they had every incentive to not resist it because it was in their monetary interest to do so. So uh, making uh, people in Palestine more reliable on the state than they otherwise would be is uh, uh, probably, the. if I had to guess, I haven't looked in too much into oh, yeah. this one specifically, but... Uh, Foreign welfare and domestic welfare have the uh, the, the same intention to make people reliant so politicians can come out as the good guys uh, to increase their social status. Yeah, I, I think that kind of tails over into our uh, into the next topic here of uh, conscription. So um, we kind of danced around a little bit earlier, but, um, you know, what about conscription? What was that? Um, you know, why was that such a, a key point in your uh, presentation as well? Well, because when people don't have the right to uh, physically disassociate with your organization, you're much less likely to take their considerations into account. So wars are constantly justified under the guise of we are helping either our nation or some foreign nation. Well, one way to judge whether you're helping people or doing what's in their interest is for one politician to claim to speak on behalf of millions of strangers a much more accurate way to see if you're representing people is to let them freely disassociate with your organization if they don't like it, if they don't see the value. And notice that this hurts both the people being conscripted and it ends up hurting the generals and the politicians long term because it doesn't give them the incentive to make sure that I'm only fighting wars that are vitally important, that absolutely have to be fought, and they're going to be fought in the most cost-effective, strategic way. We're going to minimize civilian casualties. We're going to minimize the number of troops that come back with post-traumatic stress disorder and kill themselves. They don't have this incentive when people don't have the freedom to disassociate. And we've had terrible examples in uh, uh, America. We had a First World War, which was declared by President Woodrow Wilson in 1917, two years after the sinking of the Lusitania, after he ran on, uh, he kept us out of war. We had 4.8 million uh, men in the uh, in military service. 2.8 million of them were conscripts. This was forced labor against their will. It was uh, mostly implemented by the head of public relations, George Creel, had uh, hired hundreds of uh, thousands, got hundreds of thousands of pamphlets sent all around America trying to uh, change public opinion so people would generally support conscription and pressure men. I believe it ended up being ages 18 to 41 to uh, fight in this war because we have to make sure that Kaiser Wilhelm is taken off the throne of Germany, because no one could be worse than Kaiser Wilhelm. We must get him out of there. Nobody worse will take his place. Same with Gaddafi, same with Saddam, must have regime change in all of these places. So um, it, it also creates a disincentive for the very politicians in the long run because it doesn't allow them to use, uh, it doesn't create the incentive for them to use the troops in a very effective manner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I know uh, one of the talking points for a mutual friend of ours, uh, Josh Smith, is that uh, we're much weaker with all the troops abroad and all over the world rather than back at home, which, you know, we, we always hear that we have to fight them over there. So we don't fight them over here. Okay, well, 
<laughs> what good is that if they're all over the world in what is it almost 200 bases in you know, 140 different countries <laughs> you know if if you were looking in from the outside you might think that it's a good thing to have you know a country you know stranded out all over the world because they're not able to protect their homeland well, probably. I mean, imagine uh, Tsar Nicholas uh, loses, I think, 1.8 million soldiers in the First World War. And then there's a revolution at home led by this guy, Vladimir uh, Lenin. And they don't have many people to defend Tsar Nicholas and the Russian Capitol building. Well, maybe if you had a few more troops there, you'd be able to more easily defend them. We clearly see this in the case of the Soviet Empire saying those idiots, they got bogged down in an, uh, a fool's errand in Afghanistan. What kind of stupid empire would fight a war in Afghanistan? Mm -hmm. And then uh, that, of course, is what uh, brought down the Soviets. We also saw war and uh, expansionary tendencies take down the Japanese empire, much weaker after uh, a result of expansion. The First World War also took out the Ottoman Empire as well as the Austro-Hungarian because uh, it makes you weaker than you otherwise would be when you're not uh, you know, using troops and resources in a strategic way that's only in, I'm going to be lazy and just say the national interest temporarily. So we can assume that there is something called the national interest. The question is, which process should we use to achieve national interest? People engaged in voluntary exchanges or a process which allows some people to coerce others under the guise of national interest. So let's just assume that national interest is a thing. Even then, you'd want to make sure that the nation is consenting to chipping in for things and associating with their time, the most scarce, sacred resource that uh, we have in life. Mm -hmm. Which is your time, essentially. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, now, public education, why that? I, I, there, there's a lot of strings to pull on here. Yes. Well, uh, the, as I mentioned previously, anytime uh, people are associating with a person or organization, they are much more likely to end up being favorable to that organization, especially when there is a grade or reward system based on how well you please people within that organization. So just as if everyone had to go to Amazon school and pledge allegiance to a flag of Amazon that had a picture of Jeff Bezos right next to it, people over time would justify the actions of Jeff Bezos. So the old expression is he who pays the piper calls the tune meaning that it's not like he's an actual puppet master who, you know, gets the piper under mind control. But anytime you create an incentive structure where if you're paying someone, they generally have a huge incentive to answer to you. The same thing happens with state education. When the state pays the teachers, the teachers more often than not will give you the state's version of events. Just as I've never had a boss come to me and say, I pay your salary, you make me look good, and don't piss me off. That's never happened, but there's always been that understanding that, right. you know, if I do piss off this boss, it's not going to be great. And the same thing happens with customers. No customers ever said, if you hold me accountable for any stupid thing I do, I'm just going to fire you guys, so be blindly nice to me. But there is the understanding of this customer is giving us money. We want to walk on eggshells around them. We want to please the customer because that's how we can get money. Same thing happens when there is a state which employs teachers and creates curriculum for children to learn. Right. And we'll kind of tagging on to that point. Um, you know, people always say history is written by the winners. But when you look at our foreign policy over the last, you know, 20, 30, even 100 years, um, 
you're typically getting the empire centric view as in we're getting the view that the teachers and the government wants you to get because they're once like you said they're the ones pulling the purse strings so therefore they're going to give you the version they want people to hear so they look at you know our military industrial complex and all the different you know industrial complexes that our government really has created in our nation yes uh but we basically see this uh this all around so even when you end up having what are referred to as fiascos, such as Iraq and Afghanistan, notice that in and of itself is a heavily framed narrative that these are blunders, they're fiascos, they weren't in the national interest. The reality is they were theft-funded mass murder campaigns based on lies. When it comes to the case of Afghanistan, Haji Abdul Kabir, the third leading member of the Taliban, came out October 14th of 2001 and said, we will hand bin Laden over to any third uh, nation who will accept him and then that he can be transported to America for trial if we see evidence that he was responsible for this. Basically, any country would require the same thing. They're not just going to, you know, bend to the will of uh, of some other nation. Now, everything good? <laughs> yeah, no, no, sorry, my wife was coming over. <laughs> okay. Uh. Um, uh, it, in the case of uh, Afghanistan, George Bush later wrote about this in his book Decision Points and said that the goal of demanding that they hand bin Laden over was in hopes of showing their defiance to the world. So a NATO deployment would be seen uh, favorably by the United Nations and, uh, you know, uh, people, even people like Vladimir Putin, who uh, was George Bush's first phone. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill call right after 9-11 saying we will help you fight uh, these terrorists just as we fought them in the Caucasus mountains and there's a terrible backstory there but um the point is is that it even when looking at uh things that are currently discussed seldom are they ever described as immoral theft-funded mass murder campaigns which they absolutely were in the case of iraq uh also based on lies george bush came out and spoke to Congress and said that British intelligence has confirmed that uh, Saddam Hussein is seeking to purchase yellow cake uranium from Niger. Valerie Plame's husband, Joe Wilson, came out and said, I'm the alleged source for this. None of this happened. Dick Cheney got on TV and said, it's been pretty well confirmed. Mohammed Adda met with senior Iraqi intelligence officials in Prague. This turned out to be another lie. Donald Rumsfeld got on TV and said, well, uh, they have weapons of mass destruction. Saddam could use them. We know where they are. They're around Baghdad and Tikrit and north, south, east, west some of, uh, of that area. So these are theft-funded mass murder campaigns based on lies. With the Syria issue, you have the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons coming out and com uh, completely um, 
destroying the narrative that Bashar al-Assad was behind these gas attacks, which he had very little uh, incentive to provoke. Uh, Wolf Blitzer on CNN came out and said, uh, Muammar Gaddafi in Libya has given his troops Viagra in order to perpetuate a mass rape campaign of all these civilians who are getting unruly in Libya. All these wars are based on lies and they result in terrible atrocities. So even today we see the state and their co-conspirators creating completely unrealistic narratives as to uh, what actually took place, never really getting to the heart of the issue. Right. And then to your point, you know, we we tell ourselves that or well, we tell the nation that Israel's our greatest ally, but, but, you know, we send them all this money and then they really don't provide us any benefit. And then, you know, you look up the USS Liberty 1967 and then maybe some stuff, you know, surrounding urban moving systems and then the dancing Israelis back in 2001. And a lot of that doesn't seem to be in the nation's interest. And then, you know, we also have this giant, you know, build up around Russia and specifically China as well, where we're supposed to believe that, oh, well, they're buying all the farmland, but then you look into that and then that's not true. That's a lie. Um, you know, that China's sabotaging us and that, you know, Russia stole our election from us. And then what do you have now? You have all this money being stolen from the taxpayers and printed, you know, through inflation to give to Ukraine to fight a proxy war that's supposed to, as we kind of said earlier, promote democracy. But this is all stuff based on lies. And the reason they want to uh, control history, it's so vitally important, is because this sort of gives people rules of thumb uh, to sort of uh, lean back on. So uh, what you'll hear people like Vivek Ramaswamy say is, well, we can't be like Neville Chamberlain, that stupid coward. We have to be like Winston Churchill. And who are we against? Adolf Hitler. So every new bad guy, whether it's bin Laden, whether it's Saddam Hussein, whether it's the Proud Boys, they're the new Hitler who we all have to be against. And only a stupid Neville Chamberlain would ever give in to someone like Hitler. There's so much wrong with this that it's difficult to pin down. But I want to quote Neville Chamberlain specifically on September 3rd of 1939. So on September 1st, the National Socialists invade uh, the city of Danzig which was 90% German from the First World War, was taken away from Germany at the uh, Treaty of Versailles. And here is what Neville Chamberlain said in his declaration of war. It was Chamberlain who actually declared war against the National Socialists on September 3rd. He said, This morning, the British ambassador in Berlin handed the German government a final note stating that unless we heard from them by 11 o'clock that they were prepared at once to withdraw their troops from Poland, a state of war would exist between us. I have to tell you now that no such undertaking has been received and that consequently this country is at war with Germany. So it was the invasion of former German land, the city of Danzig, which justified the declaration of war. So what we could learn from history is a couple things. Neville Chamberlain was the one who declared war. It wasn't because they invaded Britain. It's because they gave a war guarantee to Poland and said, we'll protect you, Poland. Notice this was only a guarantee against the National Socialists if they invaded because the Soviets invaded on September 17th and there was no British declaration of war against Joseph Stalin or the Bolshevik regime. Next thing we can learn is that historically the numbers are difficult to come across, but something like 8 million people in Poland died as a result of this Second World War. This was done Under the guise of protecting Poland, they gave them this war guarantee. So any fucking idiot who says, we're really nice, we're giving Ukraine a war guarantee against Russia. Well, now tons of uh, innocent people are getting enslaved and getting their limbs blown off in Ukraine as a cause or result of this attempt to have a protectorate. 
you saying I'm uh, I'm going to spend other people's money and other people's lives defending Taiwan. You're not doing Taiwan any favors any more than Neville Chamberlain is do uh, was doing a favor to the uh, people of Poland. Also, in the First World War, uh, Henry Asquith, the Prime Minister of Britain, they also declared war against Germany in the First mm-hmm. World War, not because uh, Kaiser Wilhelm invaded Britain, but because they violated Belgium neutrality. This happened in 1914. This was from a treaty that was made in 1839, where the British said, we can, if we want, declare war against anyone who violates Belgium neutrality. So this could be something like election interference. It could be the assassination of a single politician, or it could be a full-on military ground air uh, invasion. So all of these things, understanding this history, makes it much more likely that you will see through uh, lies in in the present, uh, just having these, uh, I mean, when it comes to, uh, the second world war, so many lies are just so prevalent because the Churchill lie that, you know, Churchill's the great uh, savior of Western civilization. When he was first Lord of the Admiralty in the first world war, according to historian Martin Gilbert, who's extremely favorable to Churchill, he estimates, he has solid statistics that Winston Churchill's Blockade as the first Lord of the Admiralty of Germany resulted in 750,000 German civilian deaths. This is a guy we're supposed to just blindly admire. He, you know, creates this concentration camp and starves tons of people. No matter how much you hate Kaiser Wilhelm, the German people are already victims of the Wilhelm regime enough. You're just adding insult to injury. When it comes to uh, the bombing campaign, There were two amazing quotes that I came across that I I just have to read because many people think it was uh, the German blitzkrieg that started first. It was actually the British who initiated civilian bombing. This was in May of 1940. The German uh, response came in September of 1940. Not because Hitler was a good guy, because he wanted to take on the Bolshevik uh, regime and didn't want to be fighting a war on two fronts. So there were actually two people who came out who worked uh, with Winston Churchill uh, basically, they hired a physicist named Frederick Lindemann to come up with an idea of how they could strategically bomb civilian areas in order to create pressure on the National Socialist regime to, you know, basically start waving the white flag. So C.P. Snow was a science advisor to the war government, and uh, he wrote a book titled Science and Government. And uh, in there, he says the paper, referring to Frederick Lindemann's paper, laid down a strategic policy. The bombing must be directed, especially against German working-class houses. Middle-class houses are bound to have too much space around them and are likely to waste bombs. The paper claimed that, given a total concentration of effort in the production and use of bombing aircraft, it would be possible, in the larger towns of Germany, that is, those with more than 50,000 inhabitants, to destroy 50% of all houses. So... Uh, that would be uh, 25 times worse than uh, Hamas. That That's Winston Churchill and Frederick Lindemann. We also have J.M. Spate, who was the principal secretary of the air ministry. He, he uh, went around uh, giving these, I want to say uh, this uh, took place at Harvard, these, uh, the, these lectures. But um, he wrote a book titled Bombing Vindicated, where he says, Because we were doubtful about the psychological effect of propagandist distortion of the truth that it was we who started the strategic bombing offensive, we have shrunk from giving our great decision of May 11th, 1940, the publicity which it deserves. It was a splendid decision. It was as heroic as self-sacrificing as Russia's decision to adopt her policy of scorched earth. 
which means bombing anything in civilian areas that could technically be um, used as an asset to the enemy. So restaurants, houses, well, those civilians could provide food, water, and shelter to soldiers. So everyone is basically up for grabs with a uh, scorched earth policy. So this is what uh, happens when you allow history to be written by Vivek Ramaswamy bumper stickers like Churchill Good, Chamberlain Coward. And notice that uh, Winston uh, Neville Chamberlain is called a coward because he gave like one-fifth of the area of Czechoslovakia to the National Socialists give. He didn't declare war over the National, National Socialists taking over the Sudetenland, small area of Czechoslovakia. But then after this war, after all the death, after all the explosions, Czechoslovakia is now in the hands of the Bolshevik regime. So again, you have to ask, at what cost are, are these people going to end up with democracy, anarcho-capitalism, communism, fascism? Are they going to be extra resentful? Uh, it, it's never asked because the politicians don't have the incentive to do so. So uh, that is just another example of how not understanding the history allows people to blindly accept bumper stickers and justify terrible atrocities in the present that they would not fall for if they had a good understanding of the history. Yeah, Jesus, a lot. Um, one more point on um, the uh, on public education, and, and it's that you know we're given this impression that the people who join the military and serving in the military is like the utmost respectability. And to give credence to that idea, I do think it's honorable for people to feel like they have an obligation to something greater than themselves. But, you know, the people who control public education give people this impression that, oh, well, what you're doing is so good and you're so brave and this is so great and you're spreading democracy around the world. So when you go to fight for your country, you know, you have this vision in your mind that's already preloaded India. And then whenever you go to sign up for the military, you know, now you believe that you're fulfilling this kind of prophecy. And I think it's a lot of the uh, perception that people have when they go into the military and it's honorable because I think they want to do the right thing. But I think a lot of them usually get jaded by the time they get out and realize like what I did was really bad and it wasn't all that it was cracked up to be. One of the immediate uh, scams they have is they differentiate things like service and other occupations. So uh, I don't know. It's been so long since I believe this. It's hard to get to the root of it. But uh, Ramaswamy uh, was talking with a woman on The Breakfast Club, and he said, I've done this in my life. I've run this business. I've worked with all these people. And the woman said, yeah, but none of that service. What service have you done? I was in the military, she says. Well, uh the assumption is when you're in the private sector, you're there to get money. Well, are politicians, soldiers, and cops a bunch of unpaid volunteers who never accept parades for them? They never are thanked for their service, so it doesn't benefit their social status. They never accept a check. Every time a check comes, they just put it right in the shredder. They say, no, this is service. I could never charge yeah. for such a thing. So first of all, they are getting paid just like anyone in the private sector is. Second, to call what the private sector does not a service makes you question, well, then why are people just giving their money to these organizations who provide you with mm -hmm. internet access, computers, houses, electricity, ceiling fans, microphones, clothes, food, anything else? Yeah, that is also a service. So we should have the same standard for uh, police officers and soldiers that we do for farmers. I am very grateful to farmers. Without farmers, we don't have food and we're all dead. And there's no more Kyle Matovic show. So that would just be devastating. <laughs> we need to appreciate farmers. Maybe when you see one, shake their hand Absolutely. and say, 
I could never, you know, work that tractor. I don't know how to plant things. Thank you so much for what you do. Now, just because we are thankful for farmers doesn't mean when a farmer tells you to do something, you have to blindly obey them. It also doesn't imply that farmers get to take money against your will to fund their operations under the guise of making sure the nation has a sufficient food supply. Mm -hmm. So just because we can be thankful for an aspect of what someone does doesn't mean we should write them a blank check. Uh, so, yes, uh, the, the government service scam, the fact that Joe Walsh says with a straight face that... I was in government service for a while and I'm willing to go back. He was a politician. Not only is it not a service, you're actually a parasite. Service is when I give you something and you give me money in exchange. I'm serving you. But when I have to collect funds coercively and threaten to cage you if you don't give me a portion of your income, that's not a service. That's just you participating in this psychopathic ritual called statism. So not only is government not uniquely a service, it's hardly a service at all. All of it should be privatized. We should always be able to opt out of funding things that we don't find value in. It's good both for us, the consumers, and it's good in the long run for the producers. Because instead of being the welfare recipients, which they actually are if they're paid for by uh, state monetary finances, it makes them better in the long run because they improve their own well-being and say, you know, I can't get a penny out of Kyle's pocket unless I create value for him. It makes them better people in the long run. Yeah, to kind of bring it back to a, a nutrition point is that uh, the $20 I may pay for brisket implies that I was willing that I wanted the brisket more than I wanted the $20 in the business giving me the brisket. <laughs> I wanted mm -hmm. the $20 more than I wanted the brisket. Um, yeah, it, one more example on the uh, on the nutrition thing. So sometimes they might say, well, it's so difficult if government creates something that everyone benefits from. It's hard for them to monetize it. I sell you this pen while well, you get the pen. But what if you generate good ideas throughout the population? It's hard to really monetize something like that. Well, what we could see is actually in the nutrition sphere itself, I have gotten far more effective nutritional education with, I'm sorry to plug a competitor on your show, but there was one YouTube channel that basically taught me everything. It's yeah. called Gravity Transformation Fat Loss Experts. I learned more from probably three of those videos than all the piece of trash doctors who I hope to get reparations for uh, from one day. All the time I listened in facts. I forget what facts stands for. It's family, consumer. It was the cooking class in school. We all took to mm -hmm. either get attention from women or get an easy A. I learned more from that yeah. free opportunity cost, that no monetary cost to YouTube channel, then I learned from any of the teachers who weren't exactly unpaid volunteers. So even in the realm of nutrition, we, we actually can experience a genuine service where people create value in exchange for value, not just a bunch of parasites who take five hours of your kid's day every day for five weeks. And then they're so dumb. They're like, well, basically everyone needs to go to college because what you just learned for the last 12 years is really not going to prepare you for anything right. in life. It's like, okay, thank you for conceding that, but why don't you improve uh, y your product? Why don't you improve your service? And the answer is if you can't uh, opt out of paying for it, they just don't have the incentive to. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I always like the Peter Schiff analogy where um, he basically compares government to giving yourself a blood transfusion from arm to arm, but you spill half the blood out on the floor while I do the blood transfusion. I, I completely forgot about that. But when you were saying, uh, explain the inefficiencies of government earlier, that's uh, what came to mind. So um, the final thing on the list there that you mentioned is the double standard the government has. So basically, I think what we could boil this down to is the fact that government has more authority. Well, 
in their world, they have more authority to murder people en masse and, you know, take our money and spend it however they see fit with, you know, under the guise of foreign policy, taxation, or whatever government program you want to put in there. Um, so why does this also benefit the state of warfare? Well, anytime you decrease the cost of something, people are more likely to engage in the behavior generally referred to as the law of demand. So when you lower the uh, cost of going to war, whether it's monetary or whether it's a personal cost, people are more likely to engage in the activity. So if I have to worry about going to jail, if I murder civilians, there's a huge cost on the other end of this. So I'm going to be really careful in what I do. But if I don't have to bear a legal cost, well, then I can basically kill with impunity. And this is exactly what we saw in the case of Operation Meeting House in March of 1945, which was the civilian bombing of Tokyo, Japan. Roughly 90,000 uh, civilians murdered uh, at the direction of Curtis LeMay. About a million people left homeless. And I have still not heard that uh, anyone went to jail for any of this. Now, petty crimes, of course, you know, things like theft should be prosecuted. But much higher in the list of priorities should be mass murderers and people who engage in conspiracy to commit mass murder. Because seldom is it the politicians who actually pull the trigger or actually fly uh, the planes which uh, which drop the bombs. So when you don't have um, a, a potential punishment, that's all incentives are. Rewards and punishments for certain behaviors. When you uh, take away the potential for punishment, which the person doesn't like, for engaging in any activity, they're much more likely to engage in it. That's why you do not see uh, politicians walking on eggshells, making sure that they don't kill civilians. So uh, it, it it is the worst incentive that can probably be uh, created in a uh, time of war, which is uh, this legal double standard. Mary J. Ruart has basically uh, come out with uh, an idea of how uh, anyone who advocates the philosophy of freedom can really uh, start to get the ball rolling, so to speak. And she said, just use laws that are on the books, understand the myth of the rule of law, which is the idea that even nine Ivy League trained Supreme Court justices can't agree on the interpretation of the First Amendment, yeah. the Second Amendment, abortion, uh, basically anything. So use it in such a way which would allow you to file lawsuits against certain politicians and police officers you know, and, you know, support uh, any attorneys doing this. This way, there is much more of a cost for these people to engage in these activities. You know, try to take someone to court for uh, kidnapping when they have arrested you under uh, for uh, an unjust crime. Now, it seems ridiculous that, well, you know, if, if I get arrested for drugs, how am I going to uh, sue them for kidnapping? The whole thing is to, one, change public opinion and at least create the disincentive for people to engage in the crime. Because, one, it's important to convince people intellectually, but until you hit them where it hurts, which is the pocketbook, then they're not likely to, uh, to, to change their behavior. So this legal double standard, which allows people to kill with impunity, increases the likelihood the likelihood that such killing will take place and makes wars more likely to happen than they otherwise would. Beautiful. All right. So uh, let's go back through these five points and maybe in like a, a one or two sentence summary, um, kind of sum up your thoughts and how they relate to it. So the first point was a uh, tax. If I can't opt out of funding it, people getting the money aren't likely to spend it efficiently, more likely to spend it on war and killing people. Gotcha. Central banking. When you can print money, you're not careful with the money. Mm -hmm. uh, conscription. When you can force people to perform labor, you don't worry that the labor is efficient or moral. 
Nice. Uh, public education? When you control the minds of the masses, you can get them to create atrocities and then justify it. And finally, double standards. If I don't go to jail for murder, I'm more likely to murder. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I, I think it's a beautiful summary. Uh, Keith, I think this is an absolutely fantastic episode. Um, I, As always, when I have any of you guys from the Libertarian Institute on, I'm like, I, I'm going to have to fucking listen to this episode again because there, <laughs> there are so many nuggets and I just, I ain't that smart. <laughs> I'm I'm not like a historian and you know you guys just blow me away with your knowledge every single time and I'm I'm beyond honored to you know be in such close proximity to you guys so um yeah I'm um, go ahead plug your stuff and we'll uh, rock and roll out of here man You know what I got 9 minutes left can we do one more cuz I actually prepped yeah, for, no, no, uh, go for, ahead, for, go for ahead. this one So yeah. one of the major myths of uh of history is well if we just sit back and let things happen we get 9/11s and Pearl Harbors I know oh, you've gone over 9/11 before mm -hmm. Uh, the actual motive behind 9-11 was uh, Osama bin Laden claiming that the U.S. occupied the land of the two sanctuaries, Mecca and Medina, crimes against the Iraqi civilians after the First World War, and support for Israel and their atrocities like the Khan massacre in Lebanon. It, that is more widely known. What is less known is the intentional provocation by Franklin Roosevelt for the Pearl Harbor attack to take place. So the uh, people first started getting an idea around this in January 2nd of 1972, the New York Times published war entry plans laid to Roosevelt. So these are Winston Churchill's basically minutes of his meetings with Franklin Roosevelt. The meeting took place in Canada. And he said he, Roosevelt, obviously was determined that they should come in. The president said he would wage war but not declare it and that he would become more and more provocative. If the Germans did not like it, they could attack American forces. Everything was to be done to force an incident. The president had taken this very well and made it clear he would look for an incident which would justify him in opening hostilities, Churchill told his War Cabinet, published by the New York Times. Now, we clearly have an example, based on high authority, Winston Churchill saying that Franklin Roosevelt wanted to pull the country into a war, but they were so jaded from the First World War that he was open to actually provoking an incident which could kill people. Now, a book came out in 1947 called uh, Pearl Harbor, The Story of the Secret War by George Morgenstern, and he got his hands on Henry Stimson's diaries, which today can be found at Yale. He was a Skull and Bones member. And what Stimson actually writes, uh, Stimson was the Secretary of War under Franklin Roosevelt. So again, I'm not just quoting Alex Jones and Jesse Ventura. On November 25th, Pearl Harbor was December 7th of 1941. November 25th, Stimson said, there in a meeting, the president brought up entirely the relations with the Japanese. He brought up the event that we were likely to be attacked perhaps as soon as next Monday for the Japanese are notorious for making an attack without warning. And the question was what we should do. The question was how we should maneuver them into the position of firing the first shot without allowing too much danger to ourselves. Now, what happened after Pearl Harbor? Stimson uh, summarizes, when the news first came that Japan had attacked us, my first feeling was of relief that the indecision was over and that a crisis had come in a way which would unite all our people. He understood that the state is the health of war and attack would increase state power. This continued to be my dominant feeling in spite of the news of catastrophes, which quickly developed. For I feel that this country united has practically nothing to fear, while the apathy and division stirred up by unpatriotic men had been hitherto very discouraging. Notice we're not seeing anything about, oh my God, 
we just got attacked. I'm going to lose my job. I'm going to get fired. People are going to revolt right. against us. We saw the exact opposite because the state is the health of war. The final nail in the coffin for the, we were attacked at Pearl Harbor in an unprovoked manner. That's why we get to murder civilians in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Came in 1999, and author Robert Stinnett published a book, Day of Deceit. He was going through Freedom of Information Act requests and came across a document from Arthur H. McCullum, who was a uh, senior uh, naval intelligence official. And what he said in uh, early 1940, uh, here are the words of McCollum. It is not believed that in the present state of political opinion in the United States, government is capable of declaring war against Japan without further, without more ado. And it is barely possible that vigorous action on our part might lead the Japanese to modify their attitude. Therefore, the following course of action is suggested. Give all possible aid to the Chinese government of Chiang Kai-shek. Send two divisions of submarines to the Orient. Send a division of long-range heavy cruisers to the Orient, Philippines, or Singapore. Completely embargo all U.S. trade with Japan in collaboration with a similar embargo imposed by the British Empire. And point F, keep the main strength of the U.S. fleet now in the Pacific in the vicinity of the Hawaiian Islands. Finishing the memo, he says, if by these means Japan could be led to commit an overt act of war, so much the better. At all events, we must be fully prepared to accept the threat of war. So, Instead of, how do we avoid a war? We have to keep the population safe. That's a social contract. They give us money, we keep them safe. We saw the exact opposite, both in, print, uh, in economic principles, they have the incentive to do this, and historically, they have the incentive to provoke war. Today, it's happening with Iran, with China, with Russia. Once we know these lies, we can see through uh, present uh, propaganda much more easily. You can find me at libertarianinstitute.org, where I'm with Scott Horton. We just published a book by Joe Salas Mullins called The Fake China Threat, and it's very you real were, danger. I bought uh, it. Yes, yeah, so you can actually uh, also find the Voluntarist Handbook, the 40 or so essays, which took me from being a uh, progressive to being a libertarian. You can keep up with news on the Israel-Palestine conflict by people like Connor Freeman and Kyle Anzalone, and you can get the history of the Israel-Palestine conflict by reading a book titled Coming to Palestine by Sheldon Richman. You can get a good insight into what's going on with U.S.-China relations by looking at Patrick McFarlane, all at libertarianinstitute.org. Beautiful, Keith. Yeah, you, you nailed every bit of it. Um, yeah, no, I appreciate your time. Um, like I said, I'm gonna have to listen to this again because my head's still spinning. I listened to uh, your video on this a couple of times, and uh, I, I still ain't got everything, but I think I'll get there eventually. So yeah, dude, if you got anything else, we'll close her out. Nothing else, brother. Thank you for having me. Thank you. All right, everybody, take care. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.